0: Hey, welcome to the Microentrepreneur Podcast, the magic of thinking small. I'm Julie Hall, the founder of Microentrepreneur.biz and WomenUnlimitedWorldwide.com, one of the UK's most popular women in business websites. On this podcast, my main goal is to help you with marketing, mindset, and smart business strategies to help you build a successful micro business. Listen weekly as I share with you the proven strategies and tips on how to build and grow your micro-business from real micro-business owners just like you. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, head over to microentrepreneur.biz and sign up for our newsletter, and you'll also get a copy of my free download of the top 10 business tools that I couldn't live without. I look forward to connecting with you over there. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Micro Entrepreneur, The Magic of Thinking Small. In this episode, I have a chat with Wendy Kerr and we talked a lot about things like uh, what is success for a micro business owner we talked about networking and our mutual fear of it when we first started out and we also talked about making the transition from corporate background to um micro business ownership and uh, really really great chatting with her and i just wanted to forewarn you that in about the last 10 minutes of the podcast uh some guys decided to start chopping up trees right outside the front of my window, which means that on my end, there is a lot of background noise when I'm talking. So I just wanted to say sorry for that. Um, I have managed to cut out my microphone when Wendy's speaking, so at least you don't have to be subjected to it when she's talking. But please just bear with it on my piece because um, it doesn't last very long. And thankfully, the sound quality is much better in the majority of the interview. So I hope you enjoy that show. But before we go into it, I wanted to talk a little bit about procrastination because this is something that I have been suffering with with my book this week and my deadline is looming. Um, I have a very hard deadline of my first draft needs to be completed and with my first reader um, in two and a half weeks. And I had mentioned on Twitter that I was struggling with this, and someone pointed me to an article on the internet by a guy called Tim Urban, called Why Procrastinators Procrastinate. It really, really struck a chord with me. So I wanted to just sort of share with you some of the ideas on this article, because if just in case procrastination is something that you suffer from too. So Tim has this theory that in our brains, we have the rational decision maker and we also have the instant gratification monkey. And when we're procrastinating, the instant gratification monkey is winning and the rational decision maker is losing. Um, and it, it as I said, it really struck a chord with me because um, it, as part of this process, it, Tim talks about when he was at university, how he learned that he could take less and less time and start doing his reports later and later to get them in uh, to the point where he decided to start his 90-page thesis three days, 72 hours before it was actually due. Now, I did that too. So I I really felt like he was uh, (laughs) sitting on my shoulder back in 1990 when I was in university. Um, And the thing is, of course, when you procrastinate like that, and you only leave yourself three days to write a 90 page report, odds are the report is not going to be your best work. And this is, uh, I'm something, as I said, that I'm battling with, and I'm trying desperately hard to break the habit of a lifetime of doing things at the last minute. And it is also part of the reason why I to publicly declare my intention on things like that my publishing date for the micro book is going to be the 10th of February or that I am um going to have my first draft completed by the 8th of December. And the reason I do that is because I know that if I put it out there, if I tell people my deadline, it's the only way that I can make sure that I go ahead and I do something in time because I do have to have that last minute push to get something out. So if you are also a procrastinator, Do go and check out this article on Tim's side. Now, he does, in the first, it's in two parts. In the first part, he talks about how the monkey wins and how it wants to play in the dark playground, the dark playground. And real work happens in the dark woods. And you have to walk through the dark woods to get to flow, which is the holy grail of creating things. Um, and it's just a fantastic article that is really well worth a read so I will put a link in the show notes which you'll find on microentrepreneur.biz forward slash 23. Do go and have a read if this is something you battle with as well and I hope you enjoy the show. Take care. Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of Micro Entrepreneur, The Magic of Thinking Small. Uh, this is episode 23 and today with me I have the wonderful Wendy Kerr. Hi Wendy. Hi Julie. Wendy and I have known each other for probably going on about five years now. It's been absolutely ages. She is an amazing business coach. She is the author of two books, My New Business, A Busy Woman's Guide to Startup Success, and Corporate Crossovers, When It's Time to Leave the Office and Start Your Own Business. So um, Wendy has an awful lot that she can share with us about what it takes, one, to leave corporate life and move into the great adventure known as micro-entrepreneurship, And also about what it takes to build a successful business, given that she is probably one of the best paid coaches, business coaches that I know. So um, you've had an amazing corporate career, Wendy, and a very successful coaching business. So we're going to talk about that journey and also about how um, what she advises for people that want to leave the corporate world and start their own business. So, Wendy, why don't you tell us a little bit first about your background, about where you've come from, and also when you started your own business?
1: Okay, so I um, worked in corporate for 20 years, and I am originally from New Zealand, and I started off working for Colgate, which was a great place to learn the basics and fundamentals of marketing. And then I started working for the RGO and was brand manager on Smirnoff for about four years. And the good thing about that is I started to learn about more of the inside workings of one's mind when it comes to making decisions about brands, and that has certainly helped me in later days. Then I moved into Apple, and I was Asia-Pacific Marketing Manager for Apple Computer. Then I did a dot-com startup, and I listed that on the Australian Stock Exchange for $70 million. And then in 2000, I moved to London and was General Manager at FT.com. So I've had quite a varied um, background in terms of industry, but always had the focus of building products, building businesses around the world. And in 2003, my husband got a job offer to move to Tokyo. So from London to Tokyo, we went, and I was feeling pretty confident that I would get another brilliant uh, management job in Japan. But try as I might for about three or four months, I didn't get anything. And it was a real blow to my self-esteem, if I'm honest. And I was given lots of reasons, but primarily I didn't speak Japanese and I wasn't Japanese were absolute barriers that I was never going to overcome. So one day I remember being so completely miserable with my situation and I was bawling my eyes out on our big blue rug that we had in the lounge room. And I was thinking, oh, blow this. I'm going to take my money and I'm going to go back to London and leave my son and leave my husband and get a job because I don't know who I am without a job. And that struck me like a thunderbolt. And I thought, oh, that means my self-identity is completely wrapped up in my business card. So that was one flash of inspiration (laughs) that I had in that moment. Then the second one was I thought, well, if I can't get a job, I'll just create a business and make my own job. So that's how I became a corporate crossover is I was quite unprepared. I was very unwilling and it was very unexpected. And what was happening is before my move to Japan, I started to train as a coach because I wanted to understand quite intimately how people change and how people deal with change. And my training was coming to an end. So I thought, right, I'll just start my coaching business in Tokyo. And that's
0: how I ended up starting my own business. Wow. And and how did you find your first clients? Given that well, you didn't I, have the language, you were brand new to the world of coaching. Yeah. So I, um,
1: it was a really interesting experience because I read some books about building businesses, as you do. As you do. <laughs> and, and And they all said... <laughs> You've got to start networking. And I thought, oh, networking, I've never been networking before. I wonder what all this is about. So I went to my first networking event, and it was with the American Chamber of Commerce in Tokyo, and it was everything I dreaded a networking event would be like. So you can imagine it. It was a room full of men (laughs) in sleazy, slimy, shiny suits, and they all walk up to you and they hand you their business card, give you their 30-second spiel all the time or looking over their shoulder. Oh, know. I hate it.
0: I hate yeah. it. I hate it.
1: So anyway, I decided to persevere, and I read a book about networking. And eventually, I just kept on going. I networked, and I joined different groups, and I met loads of people for coffee, and that's how I got clients. And what I realized over that time was that you're never going to find a client at the first networking event you go to because they don't trust you. But after repeated appearances and starting to build relationships and just talking to people normally, eventually people trusted me and they they came on board. And I was so fortunate in Tokyo because coaching was so new then as a genre and there were only five English-speaking coaches. So I had basically the market and I was busy from day one and I left Japan still with
0: a waiting list of clients that i serviced when i went back to london wow that's amazing wendy i mean i think there's i think there's lots of things there that we can learn i mean i remember my first my first networking event and i literally walked in the door there was maybe 250 300 people there and i was so overwhelmed i turned around and walked right back out again I don't blame you, I get it, it can be (laughs) knee-knockingly
1: terrifying. Oh,
0: it really is, it's just, and you know, when you're kind of confronted with a room full of strangers, and um, you know, where do you go with that? I mean, obviously, I overcame that fear, but I will never, never forget that moment, and uh, anyway, thank God I never have to do that again, (laughs) (laughs) or not quite, now I've got the tools, I suppose, to be able to not feel that sense of yeah just overwhelming fear really and what would you suggest for someone that is in the early stages of their business and and you know i am a great believer that all service-based businesses need to be networking to get clients um not so important necessarily for product businesses but definitely for service businesses um what would you suggest for somebody that is in that early stage that you know is intimidated by the thought of going into a room of people and doesn't really know what to expect. Yeah,
1: I think what I've learned over the years and what I think helps in those situations is to think about networking for your business as a bit like dating and that when you go on your first date, you're never going to ask someone to marry you, nor will you be asked to marry that person unless it's a completely weird experience. So I have decided that networking for me works best when I just think I'm going to go out there and meet some people I really like and connect with. And it's really taking it slowly and finding that connection and then being sure to follow up and to really, it's not about selling on your first date. It's Mm. just about getting to know people and understanding what the vibe in the room is and what the needs are of the people in that room. And also, I think what you've got to do is enjoy it. Because if you are standing there and you're thinking, I've got to sell myself or sell my services, you don't enjoy it because you're putting far too much pressure on yourself. So to really think, what how what's the best thing I can do to make this a lot of fun and really engage with people on quite a deep level, I think helps as well.
0: And, you know, you talked about follow up. What, what, do what does follow up look like? What's the next stage when you do meet people that you like, but you're not don't necessarily feel you're ready to sell to just yet
1: yeah well i have i have a range of follow-up options and whenever i've talked about this at a um when i've done a talk about networking is often they're greeted with derision or you've got to be out of your mind so let me take you through the simple options you know follow-up i think the least you can do is just send someone an email or link in with them or follow them on twitter or facebook that's fairly obvious But then what you can do as a second step on that is to really think about the conversation you've had and think, what problem did this person have or how can I help them? And I think if you approach networking with a how can I help you, how can I serve you mindset, then it always works much better. So you may have read an article that this person might find interesting, or maybe they were looking for a piano teacher for their child, or then follow that up and suggest some names. On the other end of the spectrum, which people did find a little bit hard, was to actually write a handwritten thank you note or a card and saying it was great to meet you. And, you know, there's something about old-fashioned courtesy that goes a long way, and it can be really surprising to get something in the post. And so to think about following up in a really different way.
0: I I agree. I, I don't know, though, if somebody sent me a handwritten note after meeting them at a networking event, I might feel it was a bit weird. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. I
1: think it's got to feel, have cont- context about it. Mm. So if, if you maybe you had a really deep conversation with someone and you felt something shifted in you as a result of that conversation, that might be a place to do it. Yeah, yeah. But I was, um, I'm interviewing for a VA at the moment, a virtual assistant, and I spoke to someone in the States. And we got on well. She sent me a follow-up email, which I was expecting. But then two hours later, I got this beautiful e-card in my inbox. And she sent me a lovely card with a bit of music on it. said, it was a real pleasure talking with you. You know, I hope your business goes well. And that made such a beautiful impression on me because I thought, God, that's really going the extra mile. Mm. And it surprised me. And we don't often get surprised. <laughs> anymore so I think
0: that's a nice thing to do I agree and you know it's one of the things that's really funny to me um, and I see this a lot uh, is when I go to networking events and you have a conversation with someone and, and this happened to me relatively recently actually and I was talking about some um, challenges that my son's having and the the person I was speaking with was a, teenage, a coach for teenagers so I'm talking about my son, who's 10, having problems, and she's a coach who looks after or helps children that have problems. And I opened the door so wide for her to step through, and she never did. Oh, it's interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Because it's quite often when you go to a networking event, you don't necessarily meet somebody that's directly your potential client. Um, You know, you're the uh, idea I think of networking is to build those relationships and then when somebody has a need that you can serve hopefully your relationships are strong enough that they will think of you as a potential person to be able to help their friend or their client or their colleague mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and on occasion probably maybe 10 to 20 percent of the time you'll meet somebody that will actually be an, a potentially an end client for you so I was that person and she just didn't she just didn't pick it up she didn't didn't say to me you know shall we have a chat now i could have said that to her but you know she could have there's so many things she could have done to take that conversation forward to end up in a point where um where she could be potentially working with my child but she just didn't she just didn't take it forward and i think it's surprising but not uncommon how often this happens I agree I agree and I think you know
1: I often say I've written this blog post ages ago called is your networking a waste of time and jokingly I started up by saying you know when you're getting ready for the networking event you spend more time thinking about your outfit and what you're going to have for lunch than actually what your business objectives are for that two hours and sadly, I think that's the case for many people. Mm. And, you know, and that thing of your the coach that could have been your coach is often too there's that fear about wanting to appear too pushy or not wanting to feel like we're closing a deal. And so instead of actually thinking about how can I help this person, we think we're being a bit slimy and so we do nothing. So I think the best thing to do, and you talked about it just before, in networking, is to always think about how can I serve, how can I help? Because it may have been that she wasn't quite the right fit for your son, but she could have suggested some other coaches that were, so helped you enormously. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, so we kind of went off piece there a little bit. But uh, but I think networking is such a powerful way of marketing your business that so many people get wrong. So hopefully um, those of you that are listening will have got some value out of that conversation. But let's step back to you, Wendy, back to when you were um, building your coaching business in Asia. So, I mean, you did have a great corporate background to use as a reason to... You know, so sort of, I suppose it's your credibility as a coach mm. before before um, going out there. But this was a new area and a new interest for you. So, what were the big challenges that you had in those early days when you were just starting out? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge was
1: that real sense of understanding what the value was and what I was doing, and. When you're in a service business, sometimes when you're dealing with the intangible, like offering a coaching um, service, it can be really hard to quantify what's the end result, what's the benefit. And I found that really hard because coaching was new and I was new at coaching. And it wasn't until I actually paid for a coach myself that I finally got coaching. And that to me, it was a real turnaround point because I could see the difference it made in my life and my business. And that, after that experience, I started putting my coaching prices up because I believed more in myself. So I think that was a challenge. And interestingly, when I came back to London a couple of years later, I shifted my uh, target market quite significantly. I went from being a private transition coach into being an executive and leadership coach. And I went through all those startup pains again. So it was confidence about what my charge rate was, about whether or not I could do it, comparing myself to the competition. Every gremlin that I could name came and had a big holiday in my mind for (laughs) quite a long time to the point where, you know, I spent the first year being back in London and I had some good, you know, big clients. But I just thought, I don't know if I can do this. I was that terrified. To the point, I started applying for jobs because I would sit and I'd be doing all this work to build my coaching business and I'd be networking a lot and having coffees with everyone I knew from LinkedIn and thinking, I'm still not making the money I used to make at the FT. And
0: that's when I started to think, I should just give this up and get a job. That's so a I biggie, started, isn't it? You know, that oh, it's, sort of yeah, getting to... Um, and that's a milestone, isn't it, as a, as a business owner, is getting to that income that you used to have as a salary.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely. And it's it's really interesting, Julie, because I think about this and I think, remember how I said my identity was so closely aligned to my business card? Well, then I went down the track of thinking, well, is my identity and my self-esteem tied to how much money I earn. Mm. And, you know, that's a whole debate for another time, <laughs> but... It's really funny what we have got so deeply ingrained in ourselves about our self-beliefs and what makes us tick and therefore how we operate externally with all of this stuff underrunning who we are. And I think of that, all of this stuff, if you like, is our operating system. And every time I've launched a new business or shifted my positioning of my business, I've had to update my internal operating system as well. And I know that when I don't do that, I, I have this battle going on in my mind and I think I'm not succeeding and that everything's really hard. And then one day I'll be out walking or doing something and I think, oh, for God's sake, Wendy, listen to yourself. And I'll have this big talking to myself and I go home and I journal. And I'll journal for England and I think, right, I've got to shift my thinking. And when I write down in my journal – everything that's going on, suddenly I get the clarity, and it's as if that physical exercise clunks me up. I update myself, and it's quite interesting. I've just gone through that
0: experience, literally, Gosh, last week. Because Wendy's right. just recently moved back to New Zealand, yeah. which means that you are back in the, in that kind of new business mode again. Yeah, really, aren't you?
1: I am. I'm having to reinvent myself again. Yet again. <laughs> Yet again. And my goodness, the, all of those gremlins and the brain trash comes out to play when you are doing it because you're leaving that perceived security and safety of the identity and success that you enjoyed and launching yourself into something new. And I know for me personally, and I know my clients have this as well, if I'm really honest, sometimes I find it really hard to leave behind what I've got and to step forward truly and totally and without um, any strings into my new direction. And so for me, that process of of journaling and my mind getting so busy and then almost having a a switch is what has to happen before Mm. I move forward completely.
0: And letting go of the old stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's a big one. It's absolutely huge. So you were back in England and you were thinking and you were starting up this new practice and executive leadership and thinking maybe you should get a job, what was the next thing that happened for you?
1: Well, I then, you know, after a year of prevarication and boring my friends and myself (laughs) senseless with this (laughs) shall I, shan't I business, I thought, okay, Wendy, come on, sit down. And I wrote a list of, and I still have this list somewhere, the pros and cons of me working and getting another big job, and the pros and cons of me staying self-employed. And on that same day, I, and this is a terrible admission, I added up all of my invoices for that year because I hadn't bothered to do that before, which given now what I tell my clients is a travesty. However, and I added them all up and I thought, oh my God, I'm actually earning more than I thought I was. And in fact, I was earning the same as I was at the FT. And literally, I was adding this up on my calculator And my daughter, who was two at the time, came upstairs, and we had a nanny, and she said, oh, mummy, lunch is ready. Come and have it with us. And I just thought, I love coaching. I love it more than anything. I'm earning really good money, and I can have time with my daughter. What's not to love about this? So it was that, all of those things happening in the same moment on the same day. And then I thought, okay, Wendy, time to get serious and start building a business, because frankly, it was an expensive hobby. So I shifted everything and got systems, got serious, wrote a business plan, tracked my money far more frequently than once a year, and the business really exploded after
0: that. So, um, I mean, which, you know, which is, I suppose, at the point when I met you when you were now a very successful executive and leadership coach, but now you're making another transition with your corporate crossovers products, and yeah, who are you so working I, with
1: there? Well, I work with women who want to leave their corporate jobs and set up their own businesses. And I'd been I had done executive coaching for ten years with some really, you know, big technology companies. And I just started falling out of love with it, if I'm honest. And I was a bit tired of all of their angst with the corporate politics. And I started meeting more women who like me had enjoyed some success in their jobs but when they started up their own business they were finding it really hard and were working much longer hours and weren't making the money they used to and all of the things that I went through and I just had a hunch that this is really who I wanted to start working with and I've been really working on it I guess part-time for about 18 months and last year I've been full-time working with corporate crossovers and I love it. I love working with women who want to do what they really want and are brave enough to take the step to make it happen.
0: That's where you are now. But what are some of the what are some of the tra- challenges that people make or that people have particularly when they are moving out of a corporate career into a startup?
1: Yeah. I think what some of the the issues are, is that when you start up your own business after you've been working for 10 or 15 or 20 years, you've got to recreate so much. So it's not only the external stuff you've got to do. You've got to get a you know, different tax status and you've got to get bank accounts and all of those things, but you've also got to reinvent yourself. So suddenly after 10 or 15 years working for someone else, you're leaving behind that structure. So it's the structure of the workplace, it's the structure of having workmates, and it's the rhythm that an organization will have that you buy into. So I think that's difficult, that transition. And then even deeper than that, you have to start to reinvent your identity. And remember how I said I was crying my eyes out in Tokyo because I didn't know who I was without that job. When you set up your own business, you've got to find a language to describe who you are now and what you do. And if you've got some pleasure out of describing what you used to do, particularly if you work for a brand or an organization that you felt very proud about, suddenly that doesn't exist anymore. And so you have to generate your own, what would you say, um, pride about what you do and your offering. And for some people that can be more difficult than others. Then coupled with that is you've got to update your success criteria because when you work in an organization, often success is defined by what the organization gives you. So it might be salary, it might be title, it might be a company car, business account, number of staff you have working for you, all of those things. And then when you leave, you don't have that anymore. And if you haven't thought now about what success is to me as a business owner, then you're going to find that transition really hard because you will naturally be comparing where you are now, like I used to do, to where I used to be. And I was never going to be a success based on what I thought success was when I was at the FT.
0: So how is success different for a, for a business owner versus an employee? Yeah, I for um,
1: my first book, I interviewed 50 corporate crossovers and I asked them that exact question about success. And most of them said that success when they were working for someone else was how much they were getting paid, the size of their expense account, how much travel they did, all of those external things. And then when they move into having their own business, it really shifts and it becomes more about am I doing what I love? Are my values being um, reflected in what I do? So what that really means is Do I feel that what I'm doing is totally authentic and integrated with who I am? And another factor comes in, which is, am I spending my time like I want to? And so it's that freedom, it's that flexibility and complete control over what they do. So that becomes more of their markers for success. And then money comes later. And what was interesting about the whole money thing is that some of the women I spoke to did a business plan to start with and some didn't, and for most of them it was about an absolute change in lifestyle was the key driver why they set their businesses up. And so when the money came, they were really obviously grateful, but that wasn't the key reason, and I think that's quite a fundamental difference in um, the whole work thing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking before we started this interview about uh, about what I'm looking for now, currently in my business, and how important how I spend my time is, is used to be I didn't, it was something I desired. I wanted to spend more time with my family, I wanted to have more balance in my life, but I didn't prioritize it as part of what I was doing. So, even though it, I paid lip service to it so I certainly talked about it a lot the, you know the reality is is I did not make it my priority and now it is my number one priority over the money because and I'm having to fight myself as I was saying to Wendy all the time to um, you know to not take on more and to allow myself to enjoy this time that I've got right now and enjoy my business as I'm doing it rather than feeling stressed or overwhelmed or like I'm constantly chasing my tail but it's certainly been an education I can tell you to get to that point
1: yeah and i think you know i take my head off to you for doing that because it is it's that see, when you have your own business there's never enough time and you're never doing enough and we can be our own worst enemies and beating ourselves up because there's something about people that set up their businesses is they are clearly they're risk takers in some regard and they're thinking about opportunities and thinking about what else and it's hard to quieten that mind and What I've started, I've done this for many years now, is I somehow constrain, I don't constrain myself, that's the wrong word, I put boundaries around my time because I could work 24-7 on my business, um, particularly because I have clients in vastly different time zones than me, but I do sales pipeline, and we've talked about sales pipelines before, But doing that, because money is still, if I'm honest, a key driver for me, but that comes back to a deep need for financial security, which I talk about in my first book, so I'm not going to talk about it here, about the reasons for that. But having that just allows me to feel calm and in control. And I think that if you, for me, feeling calm and in control is a real bonus. And when I have that and when my clients have that, Everything flows so much easier, and so it's understanding what's going to work best for you
0: to get into that space yeah absolutely absolutely now there's um when you were talking about the corporate crossovers, you were saying that some women had business plans and some women didn't do you think that made a difference to their how successful they were?
1: yeah, I do really I really do yep and I, I think if you've got a business plan, you will take greater risks because you know what you're going for and you understand how you're going to get there and you have a sense about whether your idea's got a market or not and what that feedback is. And, you know, this I did a piece of research of 300 corporate crossovers in the US and the UK and 68% of them make less money in their current business than in their last job And then when I dug a bit deeper, you know, more than three quarters of them haven't done a business plan. Now, 300 people, it's relatively statistically significant, but it's not a massive longitudinal study. But, you know, my hunch says that when you do sit down and write a business plan and it doesn't have to be a 30 page document that you do and never look at again, a business plan could be 10 PowerPoint slides. And that's what my first ever business plan was, yeah, for my own business and i it it worked It's the thinking about what if and what could be
0: yeah, and i mean if so if if we were to look at that as an exercise because I actually think it's never too late to create one. Um, no. no exactly and it and to your point it doesn't have to be a weighty tome it doesn't have to be spreadsheet after spreadsheet of financial no. forecasting which was what ours was like when we did my um my uh first business which was a headhunting business with two other people we had we had my god I mean we I don't know how many spreadsheets we had sort of projecting our income into five real fantasy land stuff as well um and actually, it was all meaningless because the business lasted three weeks. We so. <laughs> <laughs> probably, more probably spent more time building the business plan than we did in actually doing the business. <laughs> oh, I love it! I love but, it. but, uh, but I agree. I mean, I, you know, I think just. The thing about a business plan, and, and, you know, and it doesn't have to be really complicated. You just need to say, what is it you're doing? What's the value you're creating? What is your financial ambitions? Who are you serving? How are you going to reach them? And what money do you have to help you get started? Basically. Love it. You know, it, just really. keep it really basic, really simple. Um, and, and just, but it's important to understand the thing I think so many people don't do, Wendy. Is they don't really look, they don't really look at the money enough. Mm. You know, they don't look at what is profit versus what is turnover. They don't look at that piece of how much am I going to be spending? How much am I going to be making? How many customers do I need to be able to make a reasonable amount of money? So if I need this many customers, how am I going to find them?
1: Exactly. And I—it's you've got to crunch those numbers yeah. because the more granular you get around your revenue line, so how much you're going to sell and how many customers you need and at what price and how you're going to reach them, then you'll have that confidence the business is going to work because, yeah. you know, I, I'm i astounded that people just don't do that simple, simple element of it. And it's as if they're just putting a finger up in the air and thinking, well, this is the number I'm going to go for. And, you know, often a place I tell clients to start with to start a business plan is to say, well, how much did you used to make and what do you need to do to make that money again? Yeah. And that can be a really simple number crunching exercise. And yeah. you can do it on the back of an envelope. But really
0: do it. Absolutely. Yeah, it de- definitely doesn't need to be complicated. You don't need you know, balance sheets and, and five-year forecast models. But you just need to know where, where your profit is in your business and how how many customers you need to find to generate that on a monthly basis.
1: Yeah, and, you know, coming back to this whole idea about the lifestyle we want to create, the other thing which I think is really good to put into the business plan is how will this business help me achieve my lifestyle goal? Because so often, you know, we can work really long hours, and particularly if you're a mother, you will work before the kids get up and when they go to bed. And often it's you sort of take a step back and think, is this really what I wanted to be doing with my life when I started the business? And if not, then have a look at those numbers and think, well, do I need less clients, but I need to charge them more? Or if I'm selling a product, do I need to start putting my prices up or reducing my costs?
0: Or really... Or getting people to come, but selling on a an ongoing basis, so you're getting recurring revenue rather than yes. one off sales.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because often I'll, you know, talk to people and they'll think "I've got this business, but it's a weight around my neck, and I hate it." And as you said before, we can be our own. You know, we're terrible taskmasters
0: because of <laughs> the, the we'll business becomes all. a slave driver, doesn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really
0: does. Yeah, and
1: I think women particularly have this this belief that if I can do it, I will do it, and that stops us outsourcing or getting the right help because we just think, "Well, oh, I'll do it. It'll only take a couple of minutes," and that couple of minutes can be two hours.
0: So, Wendy, have you read the E Myth, the E Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber?
1: Yes, I read that when I did my first dot com startup in
0: nineteen ninety. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Eight.
1: And I use that because I was the second employee and I use that as a Bible to grow the organization. And that's what we listed for 70 million dollars. So
0: I owe Michael Gerber
1: a huge vote of thanks. Really.
0: Wow. Well, the one so, triggered that for me was you were talking about systems. And of course, Michael is a big fan of systems, right? So what did so now I was going to ask you what your systems were, but now I want to know what your 70 million um, IPO Uh, systems were that helped you to translate that business from a startup to to that kind of size
1: well you know everything timing has an enormous amount to do with most things in life and we were very lucky and that um, in Australia the dot-com bubble was blossoming it was an absolute crazy crazy time and we had a online share trading company so there were two. there was one other player in the market when we launched, and then when we IPO'd there were four or five other players, so we were very much an early mover, and we were also um, linked with Intuit, or with Quicken, um, who did financial accounting software, and we used their brand name to establish a foothold in the marketplace, so we licensed the brand off them. And we also did something very unusual for that time as we became a financial information portal, which basically means we bought content from lots of financial information providers, um, mainly newspapers, as they were back then, and put them up on our website. And we had, which was revolutionary for the time, a live share price ticker on our website. Can you believe it? And we did really simple marketing, because we had no money. We were living in this tiny office. It was no air conditioning, and it was in Sydney, so it was stinking hot most of the time, and we, I was really lucky. I found some really motivated people who loved the idea, loved being part of an internet startup, and we all worked exceptionally hard, but we had one single-minded goal, and when I think about building teams, that was the thing that brought us all together. We knew what we wanted to create. We were all madly passionate about it. And I started with, I was the second employee. And by the time uh, my IPO'd, we had 30 people. And what was interesting is everyone was a subject matter expert in their functional field, whether that be marketing or technology or sales. And so we had just the most amazing blend of people. And we all just got on like a house on fire. And the marketing we did was really simple because back then it was banner advertising, which still exists today, and we uh, did a bit of newspaper advertising. So nothing fancy at all. And we really
0: knew who our target market was. So what do you think was the secret? What was the secret to the success of that business? It was the people.
1: Single-minded vision, single-minded goal. And everyone knew exactly what they had to do. So we had really clear roles and responsibilities, which is what Michael Gerber talks about in his book. And we watched the numbers. Because that was a really interesting thing back then about the internet is that everything you did you could track. Yeah. And so I did spreadsheets beyond spreadsheets of modelling different outcomes if we, you know, advertised on this side or did this piece of marketing. And it was amazing how it all worked. And we had really good business partners. We outsourced. We also became an insurance broker. We became a mortgage broker. And so we found the best of class for each of those um, technology providers to do all the back end work for us. So it was good. And we knew we had a limited time. So we felt that there was a real zeitgeist in the marketplace. And we had to work really hard and really fast to to maximise it. And thank goodness we did because nine months later, the whole tech
0: bubble burst and everything plummeted. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think, um, I mean, it was such an interesting time back then. But I think the rules still apply though, don't they? One is about getting out to market quickly. Another is about looking at the numbers, which we've talked about already. But um, I think not enough people get the... um, You know, understanding the margins in something. So, for example, if I advertise here at a cost of this, and I know that it's going to generate so many sales, which is going to generate a revenue of Y, or a profit, ideally, of Y then I can that marketing cost is is offset by the money that I'm going to make the problem lies when people look at advertising for example and they aren't making money off their advertising so understanding and this is the beauty of the internet where people are coming from um, how much it's costing you and what's the profit per customer per lead then you know, then all of a sudden, actually advertising on the internet becomes incredibly powerful, doesn't it? You know, particularly when you look at yeah. things like Facebook ads today and Google ads, Facebook, for example, you know, people are making a killing off Facebook because they understand the revenue that they're going to, their revenue per click that they're going to make. Mm. And if you can't quantify that, then it, you know, Facebook advertising is a really bad idea. But if you can quantify it, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I love what you're saying, Julie. And I think too, the 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 colliery holds true for social media. So if you think about, sometimes people think that social media is free. Well, I absolutely disagree with that because social media comes at a cost of your time. And yeah, if you're not tracking how much business you're getting from your facebook time your twitter time instagram pinterest whatever it is then you are missing a big trick so really don't be fooled into thinking that it's free because it's absolutely
0: not and i th- um, the other thing i wanted to talk to you a bit about was hard work <laughs> because yes. because i'm now in a place where i don't want to work that hard <laughs> Which is, you know, I've put in a lot of time and a lot of effort into Women Unlimited, and I do feel to a degree now I'm able to benefit from that work. So I don't actually have to work as hard because we have a reputation, we have a following, we have an audience, we've got all the pieces in place. But I'm, you know, and I'm big on work life balance, but I know that if I hadn't worked as hard as I did in those early years, that I wouldn't be where I am today, and it's it is a real challenge, isn't it, to kind of you know because we do want to build a a life as well as building a business. What do you advise to somebody that does want to to get to get to that point? Because we have to put enough in to get enough momentum, don't we, to be able yeah. to to then achieve the lifestyle. But in the early days, if we're honest. It's not you're not likely to get get that level of success unless you put in the hours. What do you think? Or that's what I think. What do you think? I, I
1: agree with you. And how I think about it is when you are sitting in a jumbo jet plane and you are taxiing along the runway and you hear the engines revving up and it's getting louder and you start zooming along that runway and then suddenly you take off and you're thrust backwards into your seat and you are going up so, so steeply. Well, in those first five or six minutes of the aircraft's flight, that's when it consumes the most fuel. And then it's not till you get up to 35,000 feet that you hear those engines just go down a couple of cogs and the plane's cruising. And so I think about launching businesses or even doing a product launch is exactly like getting a 747 off the ground. You've got to put in all that fuel right up the front. And then you can start cruising. And, you know, I've um, given what I do and what I um, work with my clients about and what I like to write about, there is something about really honoring this, This I don't like the words work-life balance, but honoring your personal life as much as your business life. And yet when I was doing all of the work for the launch of my books, so I launched them in September. My God, was I working hard. I worked really long hours and I was just slamming it. But interestingly, it really gave me this incredible motivation and enthusiasm because I had a real hard goal. I wanted to get to number one on Amazon no matter what. And so I put my heart and soul into it. And I got some wonderful people to help me with that. And, you know, it reminds me back of my days when we did that IPO in Sydney We had a single-minded objective and we put our heart and soul into it. And I think that's the other thing about writing a business plan or setting up a business is if you have a really simple goal or a simple objective about what you want at the end of all of this, whether it's the end of three months, six months or a year, and you put your heart and soul into it, then it's going to happen because there's something about
0: the power of focus that makes all the difference in the world. Brilliant. Well, on that happy note, Wendy, we shall call it a day, but it has been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for your time because it's quite late for you where you are at the moment. What time is it? Uh, It is now midnight. Oh my God. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And uh, if anybody wants to find out about you or have a look at what you're doing, where can they go?
1: The best place to come is my website, which is www.corporatecrossovers.com. At
0: Wendy underscore Kerr. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thanks again. And I can't wait to catch up with you guys next week. Take care. Thanks, Julie. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Micro Entrepreneur Podcast. If you'd like to get a copy of the links mentioned, please head over to microentrepreneur.biz where you can also get a copy of my business tools that I couldn't live without. Also, I'm introducing a segment where I will answer one or two listener questions, so if there's a burning question that you have about your business, please leave a message, which you'll find the link to do over in the sidebar at microentrepreneur.biz. Who knows? I may even discuss it with one of our business experts, so you get two heads for the price of one finally if you like the show please do leave a review on itunes or whatever podcast site you are listening to this from as it really helps us with our rankings and to get the word out thanks so much for your support until next time